0: Okay, I've got Rick Fair, PGA Tour legend, hanging on the line. Before I get to Rick, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarran, and Chris DiMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R dot Two Under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Sconey changes the game. With an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit Skoni.com and use code NXTONT20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's Skoni.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at Golf Specialty Retailers and Greengrass Pro Shops nationwide.
1: Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes!
0: Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right. Now back with me here on Next on the Tee is a two-time winner on the PGA Tour, and that is Rick Fair. Let me remind you a little bit about Rick's background. He is from Seattle, Washington. He won the Greater Seattle Junior Championship three times. In 1979, he won the Washington State Junior title, and he also won the PGA National Junior Championship that year at Callaway Gardens, which just is a little bit south of me here in Atlanta. Played his college golf at BYU, where he earned his bachelor's degree in finance. He was named All-American in 1982, 83, and 84. And he was the WAC Conference Player of the Year all three of those years as well. Plus, he helped the team win the WAC Conference Championship all four years he was at BYU. He was a member of the Cougars National Championship team in 1981, along with our friend Richard Zockel. Rick won the 1982 Western Amateur. In 83, he was a member of the Walker Cup team that defeated the Great Britain and Ireland team 13.5 to 10.5. Rick was a low amateur in the 1984 Masters and U.S. Open. Turned pro in the fall of 84 and then joined the PGA Tour in 85. Got his first win at the 1986 BC Open. Win number two came at the 1994 Disney World Ultimobile Classic. Along with those two wins, he's finished second nine times and has 41 top tens. In 1999, he was inducted into the BYU Hall of Fame. And I am honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me again.
1: Look forward to chatting with you.
0: Rick, as a player, you had a great deal of success at the junior golf level, and now you're one of the top instructors in our game. How does the junior program that you grew up playing in compare to what the junior programs are like now? Well, certainly
1: a lot less structured. Uh, There wasn't quite as much uh, information out there. And I think uh, while there were fantastic coaches, I think that Coaching has evolved, and uh, we've been able to develop uh great players at a younger age but um uh, yeah it, it has changed a lot i uh There are aspects of of uh the way I learned and how I developed my game that I carry over into my coaching, and a lot of that is the kind of the organic stuff that happens by playing a lot and figuring out what causes what.
0: Rick, a lot of success in tournament golf has to do with uh the mental approach that we have and being able to deal with pressure. How do you teach your students to deal with pressure that comes with competing in tournaments?
1: well i I feel like most junior golfers who are you know so many of them are aspirational of playing college golf and maybe beyond and uh they're they play so many this is in my opinion so many tournaments now <laughs> that uh um Certainly they're tournament ready but but sometimes the ability to to grow and mature as a player uh the stuff that can that needs to be done in between and out of competition uh you know sometimes that that suffers but but I think mainly uh there, there's a couple approaches One is when you develop skills or let's talk about the actual physical skills of whether it be swing technique athleticism those kind of things. Uh, the higher you can attain, higher level you can attain with that, the greater confidence you have in your abilities. So uh, certainly, knowing that, it, that there's confidence and, and a mental strength that that comes from believing that that you can handle almost anything that comes your way, and then of course there's the the training, specific training into you know talking about mindset and. that sort of thing and um it's just it's it's super challenging for for junior golfers because they're maturing you know and then they're not fully mature yet you know as far as their emotional development so it's a rough ride but uh you know some players accomplish that or figure it out at a young age and and others might come along and mature later but certainly we have a lot of a lot of tools we can offer people now Sports psychology has evolved and it's better than ever. There's more and more programs to plug plug young players into. So uh there's just a lot of good ones now.
0: Ricky, you mentioned mindset, and a lot of your peers have talked to me about there's a difference in playing golf and playing tournament golf. How are those two things different?
1: Well, I think uh I think a lot of a lot of even recreational golfers can can uh experience that or have experienced that at some level. Uh you get into club championships and all of a sudden like, people's scores go up 10 to 15 strokes and so so they're experiencing it like what the heck happened and and part of that is that many of them don't typically putt out and then all of a sudden it's required but um you know it's it's just uh it's I, some of it has to do with an imbalance of how we view the game we're playing and certainly humans and and golfers specifically who have balanced their lives and recognize that 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 golf tournament is not literally the end of the world and that uh if we can detach our ego and our identity a bit from it that can certainly help and then and then the other is uh i just think that uh, yeah plenty of golfers have either neglected or are undertrained in in uh, prepa- uh, preparing for that pressure. And again, I go back to as much as I have been through, uh, the flow code golf training with Rick Sessinghouse. And uh, I've been exploring that for years, uh, that side of the game. I still feel that golfers who play enough golf. And I know there's a, there's an economic and a, and a time constraint for most people, but uh an awful lot of golfers spend most of their time on the practice tee and aren't able to play a whole lot or don't prioritize that so they haven't developed the skill of adapting to situations and um, knowing specifically what to happen or how to handle certain situations so so it's kind of a it's a multi-pronged approach but but certainly uh you know bob rotella probably kind of kick things off and and just you've got a lot of popular sports psychologists and and uh you can plug into their work and and their training and and it's a good idea for most golfers
0: you were a part of the 1983 walker cup team u.s amateur champion nathaniel crosby brad Faxon, also a part of that team playing for your country has got to amp up the pressure to an even higher level what was it like putting on a USA shirt and hat and going out and playing for your country.
1: Yeah, it was obviously an honor, number one. And then secondly, it was a great experience. And and I was fortunate enough to play. Not that there's anything wrong with playing one that's, that's held here in the U.S., but played over at Royal Liverpool, uh, which we play later this year in another big event. But, um, you know, I think that there's I suppose it's like a professional sports team that that maybe bonds more when they're out on the road, but certainly traveling across across the pond, so to speak, and and spending those long days of practice and preparation and then matches with with those guys. Um, it's kind of, it's a very unique experience, and I think that I think one of the pressures is there's the the most patriotic folks might that might be a source of their pressure, but I just think taking an individual sport and then creating a team event. It's just not something that's every day for, for players like myself. So there's sort of that uh, maybe feeling like a fish out of water a little bit, and then, and then of course in the uh, foursomes matches or four ball, you're letting down your partner or certainly feel like it. So I think there's added pressure in a team event. Just I can deal with messing up uh, when it's when it's myself that suffers, but when you let down a partner or a teammates, you know that, that's added pressure.
0: You mentioned being at Royal Liverpool and this year's Open Championship is there. What do you remember about playing Royal Liverpool? No trees. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and, and lots of wind.
1: Uh, I, I, the layout, it was a number of years ago, Chris, but I guess it'll be 40 years, but, uh, I know the routing has changed just a bit, but, uh, I do remember, I don't know if it was the 16th hole or somewhere about that point in the golf course where one day, par four I hit driver in a in a wet pitching wedge. The next day I hit a couple of drivers and was thirty yards short. So wow. That's that's kind of that that thing that can happen, you know, over there on seaside courses. But um I I was partnered up with uh at that time our captain was also a player, so player captain Jay Siegel. He was my partner in all the uh the foursomes events and so um that was that was a fun experience and uh you know, neat golf course. It's uh, it's certainly it was unlike anything I had ever played up to that point in my life, and it was a great experience.
0: We're a few weeks north of this year's Masters tournament. You were low amateur in nineteen eighty four. You also got an opportunity to play there the year before that, in eighty three. How'd you learn how to play the golf course? Were there some players that you reached out to to play some practice rounds and pick their brains?
1: Well, actually, uh, with the BYU connection, uh, I I certainly didn't reach out to them, but. I, it must've been my college coach arranged for me to play practice round with Billy Casper. So there were dating, dating things a little bit. And so he had obviously, he's a master's champion played there many, many times. So he, he, he gave me a little advice, uh, you know, as we played that practice round, one of which is still super relevant, which was he, he asked me to promise to regardless of where the whole location was to try to hit the green over the front, right across the front bunker on, on 12 <laughs> and uh i think there's a lot of players that wish they had done that through the years but um with that shifting wind if if you happen to misjudge it if it comes up short you're in the bunker not in the in race creek so um uh, anyway i did get have some good advice but i think i i grew up on on hilly very sloped fast greens uh at sandpoint country club here in seattle and and i think uh seeing dramatic lines on dramatic slopes on fast greens i probably was very well prepared um to play at augusta
0: you guys had some bad weather that year in the third round just like they did this year what do you remember about dealing with the weather at augusta national
1: (laughs) interesting you bring that up Uh, yeah the the sky darkened (laughs) a lot you know it was midday and it it looked like uh you know the the sun was setting it was just getting so dark and i remember being on on the 13th hole, and I was uh, paired with Gary Player. And, um, I, I recall hitting a, a five wood just before the, before the siren blew, um, and hit it in there and got it about 12 feet to the front pan and made the putt for Eagle. So that was right, right when the storm was about to hit. Um, but yeah, it's, a uh, um, it's, it, the memory's a bit fuzzy as far as, you know, rain delays and all that, but certainly remember that it was very stormy when i had that kind of neat experience
0: having been low am at the masters in the us open that year do you, do you where do you have the trophies cuz if if it were me i'd have a spotlight on them so when the fellas came over it was the first thing they saw when they walked in the door where do you keep that sort of stuff well the uh the uh, little the silver
1: cup for the low am at the masters is uh that's that's on a, a hutch down in our living room and then I believe the low, low amateur for the US Open is simply a medal and I, that's stored away somewhere. So, um, yeah, but those, uh, I, I'm not much for mementos and trophies. It's experiences that are, um, the stuff that, that I value. And uh, I suppose there may be a day where I forget all those things, but, um, anyway, the, there's, they're, they're around the house somewhere.
0: As that low am at the Masters, you were there in Butler Cabin getting interviewed by then Augusta National Chairman Horde Harden on the CBS broadcast. And you're up there on the podium on 18 being presented with that with that trophy and uh, getting whisked into Butler Cabin, knowing that you're about to get interviewed and and be a part of this huge ceremony for the Green Jacket and all. What was all of that like for you? <laughs>
1: It, as it as I look back and it's on YouTube, it's embarrassing. I I, uh, I was I was not very dynamic in the Butler Cabin, but um, no, obviously very few have had that opportunity. And and again, that's an honor. I was disappointed though, and I probably carried it in my countenance that I shot seventy five the last day to to fall back to twenty fifth. I was up there. Uh, I think started the day t- tied for twelfth, and you had 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 visions of of finishing much higher but uh yeah to be in there with seve presenting the jacket to ben crenshaw um yeah it's a pretty pretty special special um special
0: time sam bennett was a low amateur this year and was right in the thick of it for the majority of the tournament what do you think about what you saw from him yeah fantastic uh uh, there's and he's I think at that time I think
1: he was only ranked at like the 48th best college player and so uh, you know there's just so many great players and and you give those guys opportunities they can compete with the best and um, I guess I guess what I'm saying is I'm not that shocked uh, I I see D1 college players frequently up here the University of Washington team and and uh, see them play in tournaments and. And yeah, the, the level of play right there, they've, they've got the tools. It's just a matter of putting it all together. And uh, so good for him. I know it's it's a memorable week. I think he probably feels the same way I felt. He kind of faltered off on the last day. But um, yeah, it certainly did him a good. And he's a worldwide known name right now.
0: You make it back to Augusta National in 86. He ended up finishing tied for 36. Did you stick around to see what was one of the great final rounds in Masters history? Did you see Jack win? I did not.
1: I did not. I, I heard some roars. Um, I can't remember exactly where I was on the golf course, but uh, yeah, it, it would have been nice to have a front row seat, but I think I was probably off property when he finished up. Uh, but certainly, I think in, at least in, in the golf world, that's probably one of the most significant wins of all time.
0: In 85, you're in the thick of it at the US Open at Oakland Hills. You're only two back after the shooting opening rounds of 69 and 67. Talk about what it's like going from being a low amateur at a US Open to the next year being in contention to win it.
1: Yeah, I, a lot of good stuff you're you're referencing from the early 80s, so I think I had every reason to be confident and uh yeah, that obviously US Opens are difficult and Oakland Hills is a super challenging golf course. And it was set up tough and uh you know <laughs> <laughs> it's what golf every, all your listeners who play golf understand this that some days it seems pretty easy and other days not so much and it's narrowly missing narrowly narrowly missing fairways and and hitting fairies at the u.s open it, it makes a big difference and uh i i started falling back further behind the leaders and then uh, uh on sunday i was playing with dave barr and uh, T.C. Chen. That was the the year T.C. Chen on the front nine, probably the, about the sixth hole somewhere in there. Famously two chipped, which is, was a penalty back then. And I can't remember if he made a double or triple bogey, but I think when we saw that hit the, saw the leaderboard get updated with that, we we felt like we had a chance again, but uh, I wasn't able to to rally. But, uh, you know, again, that was a, early in my career before I was a PGA Tour member. And and that week really launched my professional career. It kind of got me out, got me some status for the P tour and and off I went.
0: Get your first win at the BC Open. You won that tournament by two strokes over Larry Mize. And I read that your goal that week was just to make it inside the top 125 so you could be exempt for the eighty seven season. Well, you did a little bit better than that. Talk about getting your first tour victory. Yeah, uh,
1: I did not anticipate A week like that at all and uh interesting i played the year before and uh i did not play well i i maybe i was burned out and tired but i didn't really enjoy the week and and so i returned to a site that i didn't have positive memories about and just got rolling and uh i i was wedging it in there tight on every par five. It was a little soft. So I wasn't, I was laying up and wedging it in. And I don't know what my birdie rate was on the par fives, but, uh, I just, I can't remember what it was, 69, 68, 67, something like that. And just kind of rolled through it and, uh, stood on 18 with a two shot lead. And even then that didn't feel like enough, but I managed to get it to the house and, and get that first win. It felt great.
0: Now you had a three stroke lead over Larry Mize and seven over everybody else going into the final round. To your point, you shoot 69 to win it. What's it like for you going into that final round? Because so many times we see guys that, uh, you know, have kind of a big lead over the majority of the field, start to play prevent defense and, and, and then they start to lose that lead. And what was your mindset? Do you remember what your mindset was that day to keep the hammer down to shoot 69 and not let anyone really get back in the tournament? Yeah, it's I. I
1: don't recall the details of my mindset, but uh, I I do know that the opening tee shot's probably the narrowest one on the golf course. So uh, it was you know, it's, if you can get get past that first tee shot, uh, you know, where you know it's, it gets it gets a little bit easier. And yeah, uh, you know, I I was playing playing so well and consistently that that uh, it was probably easier for me to trust and believe than than those weeks where maybe. You're doing it with smoke and mirrors and feel like things could fall apart. But, uh you know, I think I think it was just that golf course was a good fit for me. And and I felt comfortable there. It's, it's very similar to a lot of the courses here in the northwest or in the Seattle area, very tree lined and narrow and and smaller greens. And, uh you know, it's just it was my week. Um, But certainly, you know, the nerves are there. I think, uh you know, even the greatest of all time, we'll talk about whatever you want to call it, the butterflies or whatever, it's a matter of taking that and embracing the opportunity and, and sort of believing, hey, this is what I've worked for. Um, you want to get in a situation where you feel that way. And I just think that I was fortunate enough to have had a lot of success prior to getting on tour and had won a lot of tournaments. So I suppose I was comfortable with winning and comfortable in that position that served me well.
0: You had a gap for a while in your career before you get your second win, but you kept knocking on the door in the early nineties. You're in a playoff in the ninety-one Greater Hartford Open at the ninety-two Hope Chrysler Classic at the Memorial Tournament again at the Sprint International. Talk about the fortitude to keep knocking on the door and not getting discouraged. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and those were the highlights. The 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 second place finishes, the playoff losses. Those were the good weeks. There were a lot of struggles, and I think uh that your average uh journeyman p g a tour player is going to have years or parts of years where everything's rolling and then other times where you're working your tail off just trying to make cuts again so had an awful lot of that that type of experience between nineteen eighty six and nineteen ninety four and hung in there and uh you know it came together again there at the Disney. but uh I probably played some of my best golf in the in the early 90s and, you know, 94 was a year I, I hadn't played particularly well until I think when I got to Denver, the international tournament that we used to have and started gaining some momentum and had a really, really strong fall. And then, you know, again, in contention and pulled it off. So um, two for about 400 is, is my win record or win rate. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, we cherish those though.
0: Yeah, at that 94 Disney World Automobile Classic, you, you win that tournament by two over Craig Stadler and Fuzzy Zeller, and you and Stadler were tied going into the final round, but I read that you almost didn't make it to the golf course for your tee time on Sunday. You get there about 15 minutes before you're supposed to tee off. Talk about the events of that morning and how you're able to calm your nerves, because I got to imagine you were getting stressed out. I
1: was. I was. Uh, so uh, we were we meaning my wife Terry, and our first two oldest two boys uh were enjoying the parks at Disney and having a fun time and and I had that late tea time I don't know probably two o'clock or so and i I told her just go ahead and take we had a courtesy car and uh told her to to go ahead and take the courtesy car and go go enjoy the park with the the boys before we fly home the next day and and then I just had submitted a request to have the transportation folks come pick me up where we were staying. And so everything was all arranged. Well the 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 driver didn't show up. And uh I got a little nervous when they were five minutes late and then 10 and then 20. And um at this point everybody listening knows that I'm not a young man because you're talking about tournaments in the 1980s and uh it was prior to cell phones. And so I run back into our condo and get the yellow pages out and I'm trying to call a cab and everything else. So now I'm panicked, not just am I not going to have much warm up time. I may miss, miss the tee time tied for the lead. And, um, uh, finally the courtesy car driver showed up, I guess they got a little bit sidetracked and, um, get to the golf course. Like you said, about 15 minutes before my tee time, which is about an hour or hour and a half later than I had hoped. And, um, I w- they whisked me over to the driving range and I hit about ten balls and warm up and headed to the first tee and um, did my thing. I actually played a pretty solid front nine, so it may have robbed me of the opportunity to get nervous. Uh, I was too worried about just getting there. I probably didn't build up much uh, much anxiety over how I was going to play. It was like a victory just to get there, so uh, it all worked out.
0: You hit your tee shot on the par three twelfth into a buried lie in the bunker, but you managed to blast it out and make a six footer to save par. Stadler, meanwhile, was birdied four of his first nine holes. How key was that sand save to you going on and getting the win?
1: Yeah, it it was. It was. Uh, Craig was obviously on a roll, and and I hit it obviously missed the green and and caught a bad lie, and so things could have uh really spiraled the wrong direction, but yeah that was a you know great up and down i think that uh that's that was certainly one of my strengths back in the day was uh my short came and um you know it's uh there were at that point there were still whatever six holes left, but it did seem to uh i don't recall that 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 I felt that okay, I've got this now uh I was literally kind of a one shot at a time kind of guy but uh Certainly, if I had made bogey and fallen further behind or, uh, or that, it would have made a difference. But, uh, you know, it had me in a, in a good spot. And I think Craig ended up missing a short putt on, on 15. That kind of gave me a, a little bit of breathing room. And so I was able to go up 18 with a two-shot lead.
0: Rick, you recently tweeted out that I have so many thoughts regarding the pushing and shoving taking place for control of the direction and future of professional golf. Time for me to brush off the pen and start blogging. So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about what's going on right now at the professional level?
1: Well, you know, it seems to be, at least from my perspective, I guess I, since I I put that tweet out there, I've sort of backed off and just recognized that I don't think many people are really that interested in what Rick Fair thinks. And certainly I'm not going to have any influence on any direction of professional golf. And certainly it can, it can come across as, oh, I'm, I'm an old fart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that my, my general view is that is I'm concerned that the fan base and me and the corporate, uh, partners of professional golf might get turned off a bit by the conversation. You know, when you have athletes now in, in golf making the kind of money they're making and then having some big name players communicate dissatisfaction uh with how things are done and um I think that having been a, a a board member on the PG Tour policy board uh when I was on tour I think I have a pretty good understanding of how the business operates and I don't expect everyone to feel that it's it's run exactly how they would like it but it's unfortunate, I feel, that that there throughout the years, not just this era with Live, but throughout the years, there there have been a number of PGA Tour members who fail to understand how the business works, and and that misunderstanding sometimes kind of leads people to make the wrong comments. But uh, but those those large chunks of money that were offered to players, uh, it's very tempting, and. Uh, you know, life is, life's a lot easier when you have quite a bit of money. And, and that guaranteed stuff is something new to our sport. Certainly the elite players worked their way up to a point where they had massive endorsement deals. And now, of course, when you mentioned Sam Bennett, I can only imagine the NIL money and and all of that, right. That it's just, it's changed a ton. And, uh, uh, it's it's good right it's good, providing financial security for more players but i just don't care for the dialogue and the the bitterness that that seems to be out there
0: this opportunity came around when you were on tour right wasn't greg talking about a a world golf tour back in the 90s when you were out there playing
1: yes absolutely and uh i think that you know that being uh squashed or quelched by i guess it was probably end of Dean Beeman's era and the start of Tim Fincham's era that, um, you know, the PGA tour managed to kind of maintain their hold on professional golf and, and control the schedule. And, uh, so I understand where others might feel like there wasn't an opportunity to do new things, but, uh, you know, certainly all the way back to Dean Beeman, um, uh, the PGA tour was always a priority to to provide as many playing opportunities as possible. And I recall when we had on the West Coast, we'd have frost delays and things like that. And, and the, the second round wasn't completed until sometime Saturday morning. Uh, our rules officials had suggested, you know, reducing the field sizes, uh, to, to, to manage that situation. And, and Dean, uh, said, no way, no way. We're not taking 12 playing opportunities away from guys. So. Uh, that's certainly changed, right? And I think there's a lot of external pressure on Jay Monahan and his staff and the board to, uh, shrink field sizes and, uh, re- you know, have no cut events. And, uh, so obviously that, that then, uh, is fewer, fewer starts for, for journeyman players. But, um, but the business of golf, I know that people are buying tickets and tuning in to see those big names. So I understand it, but there's a lot's changed in the last 30 years.
0: So I got to get your thoughts on the idea of rolling the golf ball back. What do you think about the proposed model local rule to do it? It's fine.
1: I, I, uh, I support that. I, in general, I just feel that um holding pulling distance back, whether it be with a golf ball or, or some in some other manner uh, that that's obviously the, the one that's been decided upon. I don't think you're going to see, uh driver configurations change and and all of that but uh no i support it i I don't think that um i think people are making a lot bigger deal out of it than it than they need to um if if you pull the best players in the world back five percent or whatever the number is the game hasn't changed and you know certainly the argument that that golf courses will become great courses will become obsolete. I don't know about obsolete but they'll certainly be um, made fun of when players are hitting it over corners and 20 yards in front of a green when the hole was intended to kind of go around the trees and um there's there's plenty of especially the younger fans think it's cool and and obviously seeing somebody crush it is exciting uh, but but I do feel that that it's not a big inconvenience to anyone. Uh, even even the amateurs. I honestly, I think that if every golfer woke up tomorrow and the balls in their bag were were the rollback balls, I don't think anybody would enjoy the game less. That's just my opinion.
0: Rick, you tweeted out yesterday that there is a short list of things that all great ball strikers do. What are those things?
1: Yeah, I should have clarified. I think that I understand. There's why somebody would say, well, they they hit the center of the face often. And uh that's absolutely true. I guess I should have qualified that that more kind of from a uh the dynamics of a golf swing. What what do they all do? And um you know there's there's obviously a lot of different looking swings. Uh you got Finau and Rom and Dustin Johnson and right you've got historically Jim Furyk, and then you've got Adam Scott who's somehow is a modeled golf swing or tiger woods, but um they actually do some things identically. And uh so certainly as far as the order of movement, we call it the kinematic sequence that that you know when the club changes directions and moves towards the ball, um, you know, those players, every single one of them, the pelvis moves first and then the the thorax or the chest and then the lead arm and then the club, and you know, the folks I I coach and and work with uh, the ones that struggle uh, have that almost in reverse. So, uh, you know, not everyone organizes that in the backswing the same, but but certainly on the way down, there's an awful lot of similarity. So, um, so if I'm going to coach around uh, any principles or absolutes, those are the ones I'm going to coach around, which are the ones that you know exist among all good all good ball strikers.
0: You also tweeted out that you'd like to have a career mulligan, and you were at your best when you were 20 years old or in your 20s. What would you like to go back and change? Uh,
1: don't uh, uh, be careful about swing coaches. Uh, you know, it's just uh, here I am in, in the business, and, and I think that the way I coach and the amount of time I spend in professional development is, is very much... Uh, because of getting worse in an effort to get better. And I know I'm not the only story of some player who was really, really good that then in an attempt to get better or to fix something, uh, went the other direction. So, um, that would be my career mulligan, which it would be, uh, either certainly see a different, different coach. Um, Butch Harmon would have served me well knowing his style and his approach, but, but often uh the issue is not a wrist angle or anything like that. It's simply in my case, I probably was playing the wrong s- shot shape uh, uh, for the wrist angles and club face uh, orientation that I had so um, you know, so I try to be a very good critical thinker as a coach and and find solutions that are not disruptive or devastating. And uh, you know, again, uh the instruction I received was all well intentioned. Um, you know, the the coach or coaches that I saw wanted me to play play well just as bad as I did. And uh I just think that uh that would be my mulligan, which would be kind of stay away from changing golf swing changes. Obviously I was good enough when I was in college. I mean, we I probably have more uh you when you were given the little background of, of my accomplishments, there was an awful lot of that stuff in the, in the early to mid eighties. And, and, uh, you know, was near contention going into the final round at the masters. And so I really didn't need to change anything. I just needed to mature and, and, and know how, what I had worked better. So anyway, I think it's good advice for a lot of good players.
0: So what were you chasing? in your mind was it was it kind of in that gap when when you weren't winning that you thought i need to change something here to be to be better what what in your mind said i need to do something differently well i was missing
1: quite a few cuts and for an extended period of time so it was reasonable to think hey i need to i need to get out of this funk and uh there there can be sort of a belief system that we look at golf swing first and and that's culture still exists now and, and i i would i would want to have my performance looked at a little differently if i had had an advisor again back in the whenever it was the late 80s and and look at the other things like you know we it could be something going on in our personal life is affecting us our mental and emotional state and as a result we're getting sloppy or, or we're not into it and um, there's just so many different things that, that contribute to poor play and even poor ball striking. Um, you know, with what we've learned now about uh, the flow state or being in the zone that, you know, somebody, if they're, if they lose focus or attention, uh, easily or it's on the wrong thing that can affect ball striking and scoring. And so, um, I, I guess my approach is very holistic now and, and I, was hiring people to fix what really didn't need fixing in in my opinion um which was golf swing so um there's a lot more to golf than uh than what your swing looks like and so i i i always had a bowed or a wrist inflection is what we call it now and uh i played great golf with that <laughs> and um that w- was determined to be my problem and so, I worked for months and months to to change my my backswing or take away and get my wrist wrist in a different position at the top, which changed club face orientation. And after countless countless hours and excruciating effort, I got there. And the problem was I didn't know how to hit it from there. So it looked great on video, but but uh, I did not have ten thousand hours, so to speak, striking it from from that wrist position at the top. So um I never fully recovered. Uh the other my the other strengths of my game allowed me to stay on tour and and grab that second win. But um I was a much better ball striker in college than I was late in my PGA tour career.
0: Rick, just a couple more before I let you go. And when I talk to a lot of your peers now back in the day they were trying to figure out by digging it out of the dirt. I didn't have the technology that we have today. Talk about learning the golf swing and 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 what it was like for you growing up and and learning how to you know control your ball flight and 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 course correct and that sort of thing versus now we have so much technology and so much data how different it is
1: yeah i think that 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 it's beneficial for sure the technology we have as long as it's uh used intentionally and uh you know, it's a balanced approach to skill development, and and ultimately, right? We we need to hit a golf shot, and that's that's the goal. The skill is striking it solid, controlling club face, and and controlling distance. And then, of course, if you have a lot of club head speed, that makes the game a lot easier. So, it's really simple when we look at it that way. It's just how does a player develop those skills, and uh, certainly, a lot of the devices uh, that that measure things, whether it be what the ball does, what the club does, what the body does, um, all those different things. It's helpful. And I think it just, uh, accelerates the learning process. But ultimately, you know, there's sort of, uh, I think at times it seems, at least in social media, that there's an attack on, uh, this concept of having feels. And I, you know, honestly, I don't think we have anything else, uh, you know, in our, you know, that brain, that command, to to muscles to move a certain way and 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 so creating movement and then developing adaptability that's the part that I think I benefit from growing up is that I played so much golf and grew up without a driving range for the most part that I just learned to what to do in different situations and how to make the golf ball do different things and of course now we can talk about the golf ball's different it doesn't curve as much doesn't spin as much but uh, but i think i think that's that's advice i have for uh for folks is i i feel like there it's rare to run across somebody that plays enough golf to become really good and i like i said there's economic and time limitations but uh you know there's just nobody's going to be a great player without getting out there and on the field of play and figuring things out
0: Rick, you're now a director of instruction up there outside of Seattle. Let our listeners know how they can come and get coached by you.
1: Yeah. So the easiest way is, uh, uh, Fair Golf. So it's F E H R golf. So that's my website, fairgolf.com, Twitter, Instagram, same, same handle, Fair Golf. Uh, I teach at uh, the golf club at Newcastle in Newcastle, Washington, just outside Bellevue. And, uh, uh, yeah. I've, I've got. I love to have more, more folks to help, and uh, I, I love what I'm doing. I love my career.
0: Rick, it has been a huge thrill to have you back as part of the show tonight, and and learning about your career and all the great things you're doing now as one of the top instructors in our game. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime soon.
1: I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Rick, take care. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay. Thank you. See you, Rick. See you. That is the great Rick Fair, a marvelous player and now a top instructor in our game. Follow him on Twitter again at Fairgolf, F-E-H-R golf and at fairgolf.com online. A tremendous guest, a great player. So such a wonderful guy. Did so many great things as a junior player. Achieved great things again at BYU. Won a national championship there. Won two times out on the PGA Tour now doing a great job as an instructor. So much fun having him here. Really privileged and looking forward to having him back on the show again soon.